Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reader reading is from Genesis 18, 16 to 25. I will be reading in Spanish. Luego aquellos visitantes se levantaron y partieron de allí en dirección a Sodoma. Abraham los acompañó para despedirlos. Pero el Señor estaba pensando, ¿le ocultaré a Abraham lo que estoy por hacer? Es un hecho que Abraham se convertirá en una nación grande y poderosa, y en él serán bendecidas todas las naciones de la tierra. Yo, le, yo lo he elegido para que instruya a sus hijos y a su familia a fin de que se mantengan en el camino del Señor y pongan en práctica lo que es justo y recto. Así el Señor cumplirá lo que le ha prometido. Entonces el Señor le dijo a Abraham, el clamor contra Sodoma y Gomorra resulta ya insoportable y su pecado es gravísimo. Por eso bajaré a ver si realmente sus acciones son tan malas como el clamor contra ellos, contra ellas me lo indica. Y si no, he de saberlo. Dos de los visitantes partieron de allí y se encaminaron a Sodoma, pero Abraham se quedó de pie frente al Señor. Entonces se acercó al Señor y le dijo, ¿De veras vas a exterminar al justo junto con el malvado? Quizá haya cincuenta justos en la ciudad. ¿Exterminarás a todos? ¿Y no perdonarás a ese lugar por amor a los cincuenta justos que allí hay? Lejos de ti el hacer tal cosa. Matar al justo junto con el malvado y que ambos sean tratados de la misma manera? Jamás hagas tal cosa. Tú que eres el juez de toda la tierra, ¿no harás justicia? This is God's word. All right, good morning, church. If you're visiting today, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity City Church, and kids are being dismissed for Children's Church is what you're seeing right now. And a reminder to parents to pick those kids up either right before or right after you take uh, communion. A couple things to, to note uh, before I set up the, the sermon series and the sermon. One uh, thing you probably noticed when you got the uh, handout today is that there's an extra slice of paper in there that highlights an associate pastor candidate uh, that the leadership teams of Trinity are presenting to you guys as a congregation. Um, so I'd encourage you to read about him in your handout. And then especially on the, the other side of the handout, uh, opposite of his biography, there's a uh, timeline uh, for uh, events, a schedule of events that are going to happen the weekend of uh, March 17th, where the associate pastor candidate will be coming here to, to Trinity. Um, 
and we'll have a uh, kind of a town hall Q&A before the service at 8.30 uh, downstairs in the fellowship hall. So we encourage you to go to that so that you can get to know this candidate a little bit. Uh, during the service itself, uh, I'll be doing the sermon, but he'll be also participating in some other elements of the service. And then after uh, the service that Sunday, we will have a congregational meeting where everybody, again, is invited to, to participate. It'll be a short meeting right after the service down in the fellowship hall. Uh, covenant members will then vote on whether or not we will want to call this candidate and where he'll go from a candidate to being our associate, next associate pastor. Uh, one thing to note as well with a timeline is that even though we may vote him in on that Sunday, he would not actually begin until uh, August uh, 1st or a little bit after that. Uh, so some exciting things there, so make sure that you read up on that, stay informed and stay involved so that we can go through that process together. We are going through uh, the book of Genesis uh, as our sermon series uh, the, uh, these Sundays, and we're getting right into kind of the middle of the book of Genesis. We'll be preaching through this book all the way until Memorial Day weekend. And uh, today's uh, sermon is, is emphasizing and looking at a story that uh, is somewhat well-known about a couple cities and what happened to them, Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know anything about those stories, there's, this is not light topics today. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not in the kiddie pool of uh, Scripture. Uh, we got some really deep things to talk about. And because of that, I just want to give a heads up to some folks, uh, just in case um, it's just a good thing for you to know. Because of the intensity of some of the, the content that comes out of this story, uh, it's good for some folks to know that uh, it entails elements uh, that happen in the story. That's this threat of abuse that happens. And I know uh, for some folks, depending on experiences you have, that might be something that's heavy. So I want you to know, just have that as kind of a preparation. And also for parents, uh, again, I'll do the best I can, keep it around PG-13. The way I'll do it is I won't go into any details about what's exactly happening. I'll use some terms throughout the sermon that um, your kids may or may not know that might lead to some intense conversation. So I'll leave that up to parents if you want to go there. But again, a heads up uh, that this might... Uh, trigger some questioning uh, from some of the younger generation among us, okay? So as you can hear, we have a lot to pray about. Uh, I should pray for myself, pray for you, so let's go ahead and lean into some prayer before we get into the text itself, okay? Let's pray. Lord, these heavy stories are in the scriptures for a reason, and we want to feel its weight and in the ways that it points to you and your glory, your righteousness, and especially this passage to your justice, the reality that, God, you are the judge of all the earth that does what is right. So I pray, Lord, uh, that we see that good news, even as we may, uh, as human beings, often wrestle with that question. Um, not only those maybe outside of the church, but even us within the church may wrestle with the question of your justice and your goodness. And, Lord, this is a passage that invites us to do exactly that. And as we do that, Lord, help us, as always, to be pointed to your son, Jesus Christ, and his gospel, and just the new life that you give us in him as you pour out your spirit uh, of, of life and forgiveness uh, to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you've ever wrestled with whether or not God will do the right thing, this passage is for you. This passage is one that I often turn to for people that wrestle with God's righteousness, his goodness, his justice, especially the first half of the passage where there is 
uh, this person of God, Abraham, raising that question to God himself, wondering out loud with God present whether or not God will do what is right. Uh, one of these situations happened recently when I got to have lunch with another brother who's in ministry, and he's a brother that is just a, he's a, he's a great pastor, and he thinks very deeply about the things of God and ministering to people, has a big heart for others. And he was really in this moment struggling with the doctrine of hell and the, the doctrine of God's judgment and, and whether or not God is going to always do the right thing. He really wanted to know. That was this question that he wanted to toss around with it. Is, is God really doing the right thing considering the severity of his judgment towards those who don't believe? He was wrestling with this. Uh, how can he know this for sure that he's going to do the right thing every time? He's wrestling with that question. We're, we're having lunch together and thinking about these things deeply. He's wondering how can he be sure that God's judgment that is, is on others wouldn't be on him. Like what if God turns on him and that awful judgment that he has such a, a weighted concern about is something that he would experience. And this is for him and this particular person something that literally would keep him up at night sometimes that he would lay awake sometimes anxious and burdened about God's judgment. Not only the thought of other people experience God's judgment but maybe him, maybe not knowing whether or not he is in the grace of God. And as I listened to him ask these questions, it again reminded me of this passage today, especially the first part of this passage, about how Abraham, the great patriarch that we're getting to know in the book of Genesis, also asks God these types of questions because he finds out about God's judgment that's going to come on these particular cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're going to lean into that with the passage today. In this passage, we will see these questions about God's judgment, and then a story about God's judgment uh, concerning these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then after we consider those two things, we are going to see how they all point us to finding new life in Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's bring you up to speed. Last week, we ended with a story that Abraham invited some strangers, a, couple, a group of men, three men, into his hospitality. And they had this picnic that they were enjoying together under a tree. And then he finds out that these weren't just ordinary men. They were what? Angels. These were angels that were visiting, messengers of God that came to reiterate and reaffirm promises that God has been making to Abraham and Sarah throughout the scriptures. Promises that they would have a promised son named Isaac, that means laughter, which really emphasized and draw, drew our attention to the fact that when Abraham and Sarah listened to these promises, that they laughed, just, just almost like exhale of emotions of faith and doubt and struggle and suffering that they were experiencing because not only were they old, but they struggled their whole life with having children. So this was just a difficult and wonderful promise for them to consider. That was going on, and then the, and the promises of that, that they would be a great nation one day, and that great nation of God's people would bless the world because of their relationship with the Lord, and that they would inherit this promised land, and all these things are being discussed in this picnic underneath a tree. So today's passage, in, in uh, today's uh, passage in chapter 18, it picks it up from that scene, and the, the patriarch Abraham gets up with these three messengers, these angels, and they start to go for a post-picnic lunch walk, right? So, and they're walking around, and they get to this overlook 
that sees the, the city of Sodom uh, from where they are walking. And this is a city, if you recall, earlier in the book of Genesis, where God has already indicated through his word that, they, that both Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities that were going to experience someday God's judgment. We know that as readers of the book of Genesis, Abraham at this point does not know that. And then the passage takes us into this, this scene in heaven, this kind of divine deliberation that God has with his heavenly counsel, where he's wondering, should I let Abraham know? Because I have made this commitment to him, he's, he's, he walks closely with me, I've made these promises, should I let him know what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And then God speaks in Genesis 18, 20, so that Abraham can hear. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So he's letting Abraham know what is going on. And he says that the reason for this coming judgment, God says, is that he hears the cry of those in the city who are experiencing great evil and injustice. They're crying out because of this uh, great wickedness and abuse and injustice at the hands of the people who live in this city. And since God is a God of justice and righteousness, he has heard the cries of the oppressed in this city, and he is now going to do something about it. And he's letting Abraham in on this plan about what's about to happen. And then the scene goes on in chapter 18 with the angels going now down to Sodom. And then Abraham remains at this overlook of the city and starts to have a conversation with the Lord by asking him a series of questions. Uh, Genesis 18, 23 summarizes it like this. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? You can see that wrestling with the news. Like, what if there are good people there? And if you remember, uh, and maybe Abraham is aware of this right now, that that's the area that he has family in. He has a nephew, Lot, and his household that is dwelling in this area. So perhaps he's thinking about his family when he is uh, asking these questions with the Lord, and he's struggling. He's like, Lord, I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I know people there, and they might not seem that great, but they're not as bad as everybody there. Like, if you really judge everybody there, you'll sweep the righteous away in the flood of your wrath with, with the unrighteous. That doesn't seem like something you would do, Lord. That seems out of character. You are a good God. You're a judge of all the earth that does what is right. You can see him wrestling before the, law, uh, the Lord, interceding on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18 goes on, 26 with the Lord responding, I, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So Abraham continues to pray 
to God and ask questions. And he, he's, he's going to step into this role, of, again, of being an intercessor, a mediator for Sodom uh, as, as this person of God before the Lord, asking these series of questions, not only wrestling through them, but to advocate, if there are righteous people here, Lord, will you just spare the city? And you can see the wrestling through these uh, verses in 26 through 32. I want to read them all because there's this buildup where he says, well, what if this scenario, and he starts with the number, what if this scenario, and the number starts to reduce, and he asks them again and again and again. Verse 26 and 27, then, the, uh, then Abraham spoke up again. Now I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, the Lord said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 be found there? The Lord answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And you're starting to get the point as he wrestles. The number keeps, to, keeps being reduced and reduced, and the Lord continues to reiterate, I am a good and righteous judge. The answer to your question is, I always do what is right. I will not sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. And after he gets the number down to 10, and the Lord makes his character and reveals who he is to Abraham in a clear way again, uh, the, the Lord leaves Abraham, and then Abraham gets up, and he goes home. And that's the end of that encounter. I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with somebody and you had the what-if questions. This is a very common conversation that you might have had with uh, kids before, kid at a playground, nephew, niece, your own kids. It's, it's common for people, uh, especially uh, younger folks, to ask what-if questions, right? What if, what if you could have a superpower? What could it be? Right? Would you want to be like Batman, have superpowers from like technology and gadgets, or Superman, where you're just born with it and you could fly? What, what if? What if? Like I, even sometimes I get into one if questions. Like whenever I go on vacation, travel somewhere, I always think like, what if we lived here? Ah, oh, it's Manhattan. It'd be way too expensive, right? I don't want to live here, right? I'd be like, oh man, it's 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 Wisconsin. Boo, cheeseheads. I don't want to live here. Like why would you entertain these questions? We too, as adults. Ask the what-if questions. It's, it's part of getting at uh, our imagination and expanding our, 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 our imagination. And also, when you have these types of conversations, even if it's between adults and kids, it's uh, a way to encourage conversation. It's a way to connect with somebody by imagining these things together. These what-if questions uh, not only encourage imagination, but they have a tendency to get into the depths of somebody's soul as well. It's what if questions can sometimes uncover what somebody's uh, fears and aspirations of something are too. Maybe there's another uh, question or a conversation you had, maybe parents with kids, uh, where they're throwing out 
different types of what-if scenarios. Maybe it was something like, what if I broke a window uh, uh, and, 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 and you were mad at me? Would you, would, you, would you be mad at me forever if I did something like that, right? They're, they're getting at, like, Lord, like, like, what would you do, Dad or Mom, if I did something really, really bad? Like, would you, would you stop loving me? What if that happened, right? Uh, what, if, what if, like, I grow up to be an, a, an adult and I get a job that you don't like? Would you wish that you had a different son or daughter, right? I mean, these are more intense questions and superior questions, but you can see what the what-if questions are getting at. They're, they're, they're maybe refe- revealing maybe a fear, an insecurity, or maybe a hopefulness of what they uh, would expect to hear. No, 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 you are my child, I am your parent, this relationship is secure no matter what. That's what the what-if questions are fishing for. And here, these lines of what-if questions from Abraham are doing something similar. They're getting to the heart of who God is so that we can go deeper and connect with that reality. Abraham really wants to know about God's righteousness in light of his judgment. Will you always do what is right? What if there was 45, 50, 10 righteous? And he's asking these what-if questions to get at the very heart of God to, to maybe alleviate some doubts and to get some reassurance because he knows that God is righteous and he wants to hear it from the Lord himself that yes, I am righteous and good. I will do what is just. And as the next story will show, that is indeed who God is. And he's being honest about who he is because now we turn to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to see what the situation is like there that would cause God's judgment to come in such a radical way. So now we get to chapter 19 and let me set up this story. So two of the angels have left uh, the scene of this overlook, and now they're going into the city of Sodom. It's the evening time, and they approach this kind of common square, this public square area of Sodom at the city gates, and then Lot, the nephew of Abraham, is there and sees the men, and just like his, his uncle, he wants to host them. These are strangers coming into the city, and he wants them to come over. It's evening time, so like, come over, you know, wash up a little bit, I'll make you a meal, why don't you stay the night, get off the streets of Sodom, and go ahead and crash here. Uh, And this is one of those things where, again, Lot likely does not know that these are divine messengers. He does not know that these are angels. Like Abraham didn't know it initially, and it was revealed to him later. He likely has no idea that these are just, just strangers in the city, guests in the city that he's about to host. And if you ever, I don't know if you've ever read this verse in Hebrews 13 too, but it gives this heads up to us as New Testament Christians about stories like this. You ever, you ever seen this verse? Do not forget to show hospitalities to strangers. Why? For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You want to know what stories that that passage has in mind from the Old Testament? It's stories like this. Because each time initially, they didn't know that these were angels. Well, you might read a verse like that and think, well, that's a weird verse. I've never hosted an angel. Well, you wouldn't have known it maybe, right? That's the point of the passage. And maybe you're like, oh, no, I've never hosted an angel because I just don't have strangers over. I started to think about this. I host an Airbnb, meaning, like, I might have had angels over and charged them a fee, right? (laughs) Like, 
What if the guests that like smoked pot in my Airbnb and I left them a bad review were the angels, right? And I just got off of this bad start. Like if this is where my brain went. Like if this is true, like what if it happened in my Airbnb? I don't, that's just, that's just how I think about things, guys. I just like looking at this passage, you have to wonder like he did not know. The angels would reveal themselves later, but that's the entire point of the passage. Like we practice hospitality because not only it's the heart of God, but we read stories of people entertaining angels and not even knowing it. That's what's going on. Now back to Sodom. These angels initially turned away the invite from Lot to stay, but Lot insists, like Abraham did, that to stay in his home with his family. And in a little bit, I'm going to read verses to start to get to know why Lot would maybe insist that they stay, because the, the angels are like, no, we'll just stay in the open square. We'll just sleep outside tonight. And Lot's like, no, 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 you've got to stay with me. Let me host you. And he insists and he pressures them. And not only is he doing that because of practicing hospitality, but he lives in this city and he likely knows how violent this place turns, especially in the evening, which is what we're going to turn to right now. Look at Genesis 19, 3 through 5, and we'll see why Lot insists that these strangers stay with him. But he insisted so strongly that they go with him and enter his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had to go to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So they're about to turn into the evening and go to bed after a good meal. And Genesis 19 wants us to know that this mob that is surrounding the house isn't just a segment of the city. What did it say? All the men, every generation, every single man went to the house to make this violent request. And to put it bluntly, they want to rape these messengers that are there. That's how wicked the request is. Lot responds in verses 6 to 8. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. So Lot wants to protect his guests. He goes outside, shuts the door, extra layer of protection between him and his guests, and he proposes, I can notice that you felt the same way about this passage when I read it too, a truly shocking proposal. It would have shocked the original readers just as much as us. It's not meant to be a good idea. It's a terrible idea. And it shows you how complex Lot is. One, on the one hand, he hosts people and he, and he wants to protect them. On the other hand, terrible way to try to go about trying to protect them by sacrificing your own daughters to this mob that wants to turn violent. The mob responds to this request in verse 9. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, referring to Lot, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. So here they reject the offer from Lot. 
They want the guests, not the daughters. And even in in their reply, they disparage Lot's status as a migrant. Remember, he is not from Sodom. He's a migrant like his uncle Abraham that had went to this city to dwell there. And they kind of just like, oh, you're just a foreigner. Like, get out of our way. And they disparage his status. And then they turn violent and start pushing up against him to break down the door to get into the house. This is a terrible situation. This is one that it's impossible for them to get out of. The whole city surrounding it, and this is a mob now turned violent. So what happens next? Verse 10. But the men, that is the angels inside, reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the, house of, at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. So the angels pulled Lot back in, shut the door, and struck the men outside the home with blindness. Likely, because of other stories in the Old Testament, it was light that blinded them from seeing. And at this moment, Lot realizes, likely, these are not just ordinary men. These are angels and divine messengers coming here to my house, and I am hosting them. And there's this physical reality of blindness that happens to the mob. They, they can't find where they're going anymore. They're still trying to get to the door, but they can't find their way to the door because they're blind. Because, but also, other parts of Scripture will often talk about this physical blindness as an allegory for spiritual blindness as well, that this is also the state of their heart, that they are so wicked, that they're so unjust, that they're so violent, that even if they're struck with blindness, what are they doing? They're not going home, but even though they're blind, they're still trying to get to the door to do the violent and wicked thing that they declare they want to do to these guests. That's how wicked and depraved and hard-hearted they are. In verses 12 through 14, the angels tell Lot that God is about to judge and destroy this city. And he says, he gives them the option, is there anybody else uh, who's part of your household that you need to go and get before this happens? And Lot mentions that he has some future son-in-laws that are also in the city, that these men are engaged to his daughters to be married. So Lot goes to them and tries to convince them to run away from the coming judgment of God. He says, God is going to destroy the city. Come with us and be saved from that judgment. The son-in-laws in this part of the story don't take him seriously. They believe Lot is just acting like a fool, and they would rather stay in this environment and the ways of Sodom and Gomorrah rather than following this path of salvation that's being offered to them. So the son-in-laws stay put. They do not leave. And then things get urgent. Verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. With the coming of dawn... The angels urged Lot, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the, when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had been brought out, one of them said, flee for your lives, 
Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. You can sense the urgency in the passage here, like this is about to happen. Get away so you are not swept up in God's judgment. And the next verses in in this passage, Lot hesitates at this moment if you keep reading. And the reason he hesitates is he does not want to go to the mountains. God, God has commanded him, get salvation, get to safety by going to the mountains. But Lot's like, uh, I don't like the accommodations there. There's this little city called Zor. Uh, it's no, you know, it's not a great city. It has a similar vibe as Sodom, but it's a small city. Can I go there and, and can you spare that city so that I can dwell in the city rather than the mountains? Now, God, through these angels, mercifully grants the request, and so then he goes to the city rather than the mountains. This is going to be a key detail a little bit later. And this is how the passage picks up the story in verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities on the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also all the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So Lot reaches this uh, city of refuge granted by God, and the Lord did what he was good at going, said he was going to do. He rains down judgment on both Sodom and this other city called Gomorrah. And then everything, not only in the city, but around the city is destroyed. And then you probably noted that detail, including Lot's wife. She looked back. Remember the command of the Lord, don't look back, keep running, go to a place of safety. And she looked back and also uh, uh, experienced the judgment of God because of it. And the looking back is, is also a, a deeper uh, action that the scripture is getting at of what was probably going on in the heart of Lot's wife. It wasn't that she just, just happened to look back and whoops, now your pillar is slow. There's likely in the passage more to it. That she was looking back because her eyes were not only looking to Sodom, but her heart was still there. That's the life that she still wanted. That's the, the, the culture that she still wanted to embrace. So it wasn't just that she was looking back to a city, but her heart was still in that way of life that God's judgment, judgment was coming to judge. And then we finally get back to Abraham, which is what we started with in this story, verses 27 to 28. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. At this point, we know that Lot and his daughters are saved, but Abraham does not. He just sees the aftermath of God's judgment, and, and the cities and the surrounding areas are burning like, like, and smoke is coming up from this area like smoke from a fire pit. And it goes back to that initial question. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the story here exists to answer that question. Notice that Lot was rescued. The righteous were not swept away with the unrighteous. And the other point of the passage was to show how bad and how wicked the city got 
that it would that, that, that it got so that it deserved this divine wrath from heaven. And it's interesting sometimes hearing debates within the church, debates among pastors, and even sometimes commentators, because they'll often look at this passage and try to narrow it down. What is the one thing that caused this to happen? Like, what is the, what is the act of wickedness? What is the sin that caused this to happen? But if you read this passage and even other passages in the Old and New Testament that talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, it comes at it from different angles to show not just a thing, but a comprehensive picture of how unjust and wicked this city had become. Some of the examples from both the passage and through other uh, areas of, of Scripture, it was wicked because it didn't show hospitality to those who needed a home and rest. It was wicked because they had disdain for outsiders living among them. Remember that comment that they threw out about Lot's status as a foreigner. They were wicked because they crossed the boundaries of sex, which God created to be a natural and embodied experience between male and female who are husband and wife. And that's an ordering of sex that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And Romans 1, Paul talks about what happens when that is mixed together and you exchange the truth of God's created order with a lie. Number four, not only are they crossing these boundaries set at creation, they also are forcefully doing so with this mob that was bent on abuse and rape. These people are both wicked and violent. One of the commentators even mentioned some rabbinic literature that indicates that this uh, approach to these strangers from outside the city was a common thing that uh, the people of Sodom would do in order to discourage new people from settling into the city, that they would use abuse as a wicked tool to discourage people from settling there, is some of how the early uh, Jewish uh, thinkers were thinking about this passage. And fifth and finally, many commentators make the point that in other stories of Scripture, mobs like this that are so violent and so blind, when they get their way, what they, if, they wanted, if they got their way of what they wanted to do with these two angels who they thought were men, not only would they have abused them, they would have likely killed them as well. And in this picture, it's not focusing on one of those things being the reason but it's painting this comprehensive picture of how unjust and how wicked and how depraved this city was all the way down to every single person except for Lot, who isn't an outstanding citizen himself, but it shows how bad the rest of them were, being rescued from God's judgment. That's what's going on here. Ezekiel 16.49 summarizes that those in Sodom were arrogant, Overfed and unconcerned, they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before the Lord. And that is the description of those that dwelled there. The angels visited and confirmed that the Lord is just and right to do this. He does not turn a blind eye to the oppressed and those that have been wronged and abused. Now, the story doesn't end there. Uh, you think it actually uh, would end maybe on a lighter note, but it gets a little bit more intense. Uh, so if you're not familiar, the, the story now turns to a similar thing that happened with the last time we looked at God's judgment in such an intense way. When was that? It was with the flood story. And remember what happened with the flood story? You have righteous Abraham saved from the flood. He gets out off the boat, and what happens? Gets drunk, 
and shames himself, and some questionable behavior happens between him and his kids. That's what happens after this, this comprehensive judgment. Well, something similar but even more intense is about to happen with Lot and his daughters. Uh, in chapter 19, 30 through uh, 38, I won't read the passage, but just summarize it here. Lot uh, retreats from this small village that he wanted to go to because the passage says, quote, he was afraid to stay there. Well, yeah, if the small village is like Sodom, just a little bit smaller, it's still going to be a rough place to be. So he f- ends up fleeing to the mountains anyway. And while in the mountains, the daughters come up with this terrible plan. Uh, remember, the, the daughters lost their fiancés. And so now they're thinking about, I'm not going to get married, and I have no kids. What am I going to do? So the older daughter comes up with the plan to get his, the father drunk two nights in a row so that her and her sister can get pregnant. That's what happens in the cave. Uh, and one of the points of the story is that, that even the daughters, kind of like the mom who turned back with a heart still set to Sodom, even though that they had left Sodom, they still practiced the ways of Sodom. This still is a way that, that they are crossing the boundaries that God has set into place in Genesis 1 and 2, and the daughters uh, had crossed those boundaries with their dad. So not only was Lot's wife literally turning back to Sodom, but their actions of the daughters show that they were still behaving like those in Sodom. Going up to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the gospel of Luke, Jesus once taught that both the story of the flood and the story of Sodom teach us something about turning away from our former ways. Uh, even if life seems ordinary and okay, that, that, that the, the the, the life of the Christian life is to live in light of the judgment of Christ over the living and the dead and to turn from our old ways of life into the new way that God offers us in Christ. This is how Jesus taught about this account in Luke chapter uh, 17. Just as it is or was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. That's when Jesus comes back to love, judge the living and the dead. People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day of Lot left Sodom. But the day that Lot, Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus teaches. And this is the point he wants to make. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. Jesus, too, is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And when that judgment happens, he will not sweep the righteous away with the unrighteous. He will separate those that are his from those that are not. And judgment is going to happen. And one of the ways that he teaches that you know that you're moving towards life in Christ, that you know you're not looking back to former ways of wickedness, but looking ahead to a new life in Christ, is by looking ahead to the gospel, what Jesus offers, that you're saying, I will lose that way that I've lived my life because I can gain eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
It's at this point that I'm thinking about both the passage and what Jesus is teaching here, and I'm going back to Lot, right? He isn't necessarily somebody you would describe as completely righteous. Remember what he offered with the daughters? I mean, he's not like an outstanding citizen, right? There's, there's some issues there, and if you remember Lot's story, this is very important. Like, from the beginning, he is just a, a, a conflicting, confusing person, because when we first meet him, he's, he's growing in wealth, and his nation and his household is growing in wealth and power, and so is Abraham, and they can't dwell in the same land, so they choose different areas to go to, and Lot chooses the area east, right, because then he can uh, have an area that, like, on the eyes looks better and more plush and has more vegetation, but it's a direction that moves him closer to Sodom. So it's not that he just literally chose this land, but it kind of shows where his heart is. He's wayward. He's drifting away from the promises of God. Moving east, if you remember in the book of Genesis, is the direction that uh, Adam and Eve moved when they got out of Eden. To move east is a bad thing, right? It's not you're going from a place that's the promised land to a place that's not. Just like if you were to go from Minnesota as the promised land to Wisconsin, it's east, right? You don't want to go to Wisconsin. Same thing here. That's an analogy. Going east means you're drifting away from the promises of God. You're drifting away from, there's a lot of brothers and sisters here from Wisconsin. I love you guys. I know you can handle it. But that's the imagery. Like when we meet Lot, he's drifting. He's not, he's not this guy that's just got this rock solid faith. He's drifting away from the Lord and the promises. He's a confusing and conflicted individual. And when we see him again, he's not only living near Sodom, he's in Sodom. And there's a sense that like he's not as bad as those in Sodom because he actually will host migrants and strangers, but there's a sense that he's been influenced by their ways because of the way that he just so easily came up with that plan of injustice towards his daughters. And there's a couple things that are probably happening here. Maybe one point of Lot being who he is is that it shows, again, how really bad those in Sodom were. But two, there's another big part of why Lot was saved and not swept away with everybody else. And we get that detail in chapter 19, 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. How did he remember Abraham? What was that talking about? What was he talking about when Abraham prayed before the Lord and mediated and interceded on behalf of not only the righteous in the city, but in this case, his very nephew. And it teaches us a couple things. One, never underestimate the power of praying for those who are drifting away from the Lord. Go to him in prayer. But even more than that, never doubt the true and better intercessor who prays on our behalf, Jesus the Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You see, during the divine deliberations that happen in heaven, Jesus is there for those of us that are in Christ before the judge of all the earth saying, I bought them with my blood and gave them new life in my resurrection. This person didn't try to keep their old life, but they lost it so they could gain eternal life in me. They turned away from that way and now are following my ways of love and life. Let my death pay for whatever he or she owes and let my resurrection raise them up on the last day. We're not saved because of our good works, but because of the works of him who, like Abraham, in a true and better way, interceded on our behalf so we are not swept away in God's judgment. 
And in that moment you believe in the gospel, brothers and sisters, you find new life by losing the old, and you find an advocate in Christ forever with you in heaven.